Tonight, I'm going to uh, take us through working with the five hindrances. And now that we're several days into the retreat, um, I know that we've all been experiencing them. So this talk might be coming a little late. (laughs) Uh, And yet, at some point, you can see that the hindrances, um, they visit a lot. And that's one thing to know about them. That's one thing to mature your relationship to practice is to uh, settle in and open up to them when they come and not uh, keep expecting that one day uh, you'll be free of them um, in terms of they'll, they'll never come up again. The maturing of practice uh, is an opening up to whatever arises even when challenges arise and the hindrances do come up a lot. But before we get into the hindrances, um, I thought I would start with a question a friend asked me once, and she said, now that you've done as much practice as you have, um, what did you say? How can you describe the shift that's happened for you? And, The analogy that came to my mind, which is kind of how my mind works with analogies, was that um, when I was a child, uh, growing up in Providence, Rhode Island, we used to take field trips up to the Boston Aquarium, which is probably about as round as this room and maybe as high. It's just a vast tank. Um, And what feels like happening in my mind as I practice more and more it's a lot like what it was like to visit that tank. It was uh, large and spacious. It was well taken care of, so the water was very clear. And then all these things would just keep swimming through it. And <clears throat> they all sort of struck harmony with each other. I was still kind of um, shocked that you can have a tank and there can be a shark in it and there can be small fish and the small fish don't live in a constant state of anxiety. They sort of school and they swim, and the shark goes through, turtle goes by, school of fish goes by. And that's kind of the felt sense of what a lot of practice has done. I feel this a little bit more spacious. Things pass through, even the sharks of my mind (laughs) pass through, um, but they don't seem to cause as much uh, turbulence. They don't cause as much um, uh, suffering or agitation so I have room for the sharks, I have room for the turtles, I have room for the small school of fish. And it feels like an internal harmony has sort of arisen. Um, and if I had talked to me 20 years ago when I started and said, this is what a lot of work is going to do for you. <laughs> As a young man, I don't know if that would have been um, compelling enough. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> but the felt sense of the difference between the amount of practice I've done and where my mind was 20 years ago, I can tell you it's uh, more than validated, more than paid for itself. The, uh, the tank analogy is, is an interesting one for the mind. Um, the water within the tank can be seen a little bit like an analogy for awareness. And awareness is sort of is in the tank, it's clear, And we tend to look at the things swimming through it, but the things get to swim through it because there is this uh, large tank of awareness, this large tank of knowing. And that, uh, strangely, um, has held a lot of my own relationship to how I see practice, really clarifying the water within the tank and accepting the things that are swimming through it. So maybe start there. This, um, I was able to take this a step further. Uh, recently, I've taken up um, the, uh, the sport of scuba diving. And it's not really a sport, I guess, because it's not that athletic, but <laughs> going down into the water, um, floating, and being among the fish, being among the water, the coral, um, currents will go by and you sort of slosh, and the fish will all slosh, and the coral will slosh. Um, I think when I was looking at the tank, I was, that's, that's an observer looking at something. 
And being down in the water with everything is much more of the depth of intimacy that's come over time. So I feel very among what's happening, um, down in. And recently when I was diving, this um, the person who was leading the trip, you know, we chose these tiny little shrimp living in these tiny little crevices, and they'd be beautiful. And then you'd go 10 feet more, and this moray eel would come out and kind of open its mouth at you threateningly and then duck back in. And um, there's so much fascination. There's this beautiful world down below the surface. And <clears throat> that's often what we're trying to do is purify our minds, develop intimacy, be in our experience, as Heather was talking last night and the ode to mindfulness that James gave, more and more allowing yourself to relax into whatever is happening with this complete faith. Just sink into what is happening. And as the mind begins to clear, clarify, as the intimacy deepens, you can begin to learn about how you create your own suffering and how you can let go of those patterns by being down in the experience of the heart, the mind, and the body deepening that intimacy. So, and then we come to the five hindrances. And on the one hand, the five hindrances are just another set of experiences to settle down into when they arise. But as the word kind of conveys, they're difficult to settle into. They're difficult to be intimate with. They're difficult to see clearly what's happening. And so we tend not to like them. We tend to get frustrated by them. When the hindrances arise, we'll tend to use language like I had a bad sitting or my practice was good and then it just got bad. It's really awful or kind of depressing because there are these hindrances. On the one hand, yes, that's true. On the one hand, being hindered is not pleasant. It's hard to learn. It's hard to see clearly. It's hard to have self-intimacy when there is, uh, when the hindrances are strong. That's on the one hand. On the other, it's actually by strengthening yourself, your resolve, your commitment, your patience to settle into whatever's arising, even when it's difficult, either difficulties in the mind, difficulties in your experience of something that's painful. Developing that capacity to settle in where it's difficult expands up the places you're free. Freedom is not by running far away from troubles, but by having things arise and pass through you and not have them cause trouble, not have the experiences trouble you, the experiences of life. When I was in uh, when I was in Burma, we wouldn't <clears throat> we were invited to practice in a room like this with a lot of people. But um, there's also the opportunity just to stay in your cabin and do practice. And so I did that. I had a cabin up on this ridge, um, and I would spend from noon every day until sunrise the next day by myself practicing. And <clears throat> some days my mind was sort of open and things would be clear and practice was validating. And I was like, yeah, I will be a monk for the rest of my life. This, there's no doubt, it is clear sailing. I don't know why I ever doubted this path. It's beautiful, validating. Take me, I'm yours. And then conditions would shift and one or more of the hindrances would begin to arise. And if they arise and pass quickly, I could take them. But if they arose and they kind of settled in, uh, they were very difficult and they were confusing. And I would have to work with them. And so the hindrances can come in small waves and big waves. And the big waves uh, are the, probably the most challenging parts of being on the path is when you get the large waves of hindrances. And yet, after every large wave of hindrances, my mind would easily settle in more deeply. And I don't know if this is uh, true or not, but it feels, 
my, like it aligns with my experience, that I was actually much more purified after working with the hindrances. My mind would settle more easily and more deeply, not because I was doing better practice when the hindrances weren't there, but by actually experiencing these challenges, letting them soften me, letting them open me, renewing my own commitment, my own self-care, my patience, letting go of the wish that things were different, as that strengthened, usually through encountering the hindrances, when they passed, as they do, the what would be remaining would be, um, I'd be more humble, I'd be more open, my mind would come to more stillness more easily. And when I was still in the model of hindrances are bad practice, and when they're not there, that's good practice, how do I get more of that? That model caused me tremendous suffering. Just I, that model alone will make this path the most difficult thing you'll ever do because the hindrances arise. They arise as part of the path. And if they're seen as bad, unfortunate, um, the bad practice or where you struggle the most, and you don't have a sense of holding or honoring of them when they come and go, you're probably still in the model of um, slightly clinging to times when they're not there. And if you can rest and allow clarity to come and allow hindrances to come, the hindrances arise, they move through, they leave. And while you're working with them, you're actually strengthening yourself. And that strength tends to translate into more stillness, more faith, more humility, more clarity, more self-care. So in some ways, the hindrances can be a very um, beautiful part of the path. They can be a way that you get stronger, a way that you're aligning yourself with the wisdom of non-clinging. So <clears throat> that, that may be a tall order right now for you. If you. I'm not sure if you've worked out that relationship to them yet. But uh, it's what I would hope for you. <clears throat> so how to, uh, well, first I'll name them just in case the list is old for you. The first may be called sleepiness, where the energy of your mind and body is very low. The second we call restlessness, where it feels like there's too much energy, too much busyness in the mind and in the body. We have the, the arising of aversion, the arising of disliking and being agitated by disliking your direct experience. On the flip side, there's craving, there's the yearning for what you don't have. There's the seeking, there's the wishing something else would happen. It's close to aversion, but it's the flip side. And the last is uh, what we call doubt. <clears throat> so in going through the hindrances when they arise, uh, the first thing I would recommend is when it's arising, see if you can stay connected to your original uh, endeavor. So if you're working with the breath, you're working with your feet, your um, when walking, you're eating, and you feel a little sleepiness come on or a little restlessness come on, in that moment you might just recommit so that you're strengthening. You're using that moment to strengthen your resolve to stay with your meditation. And yet, <clears throat> if the hindrance that's arising is persistent and it really begins to challenge your ability to make any connection to the breath, any connection to your feet when walking, any connection to your food when eating or whatever you're doing, then you can begin to explore and begin to open up to and acknowledge, okay, there's a, these hindrances are present. One of them or several of them are present. So the first thing you do when you want to make work with the hindrances uh, is to recognize it. I'm going to go through this... Um, acronym that's commonly used here called RAIN, R-A-I-N. The R often stands for recognize, the A for acceptance. I can stand for uh, investigation. 
an end for non-identification or non-story. So taking sleepiness as an example, you're sitting there minding your own business and you start to notice maybe a fatigue coming on or a cloudiness coming on or a type of um, fogginess and the mind becomes dim and it's hard to connect to the breath because uh, it's like your battery is going down. And as your mind begins to sink and you go to get to the breath, there's just not enough um, juice or interest to really meet what's happening. And so you keep drifting off the breath or even having a hard time finding it. You know, in sitting meditation, when breathing. So it's a category of experiences where uh, the mind feels dim, feels low energy, feels groggy or foggy. Uh, you might feel that the body at that time feels very heavy. And <clears throat> you can drift into these states without really knowing it. You think you're watching the breath, watching the breath. And then it slowly takes you over and you're not really watching the breath, you're sort of just floating. And if you notice, if you open your eyes, there's usually <laughs> four or five people doing that, um, the, 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 the bird that drinks the water. <laughs> Let's like go down and then back up and slowly, slowly, slowly go down and then back up. (laughs) So using this acronym RAIN, the R stands for recognize. And it can be challenging in a hindrance because it's a hindrance to use mindfulness. And so the challenge is, hmm, I'm not really connecting with my breath. I wonder why that is. Oh, I think that there's sleepiness. Mm, this is sleepy. And you might get that, and then the mind is too tired to even reflect upon the sleepiness. And so there's more kind of, yeah, I bet I'm sleepy. <laughs> and being in a drifty state. But <clears throat> the uh, invitation there is to, well, what is it like to be sleepy? And you say, well, I tried to explore sleepiness, but it was too sleepy. I couldn't. Say, like, ah, you just learned something about sleepiness. When sleepiness is present, the light is so dim, there's not a lot of um, mindfulness available. But within what is available, you can begin to explore the sleepy state. You know, you'll get these little moments where it's like, it's very quiet. <laughs> uh, this sleepiness is heavy, or, oh my God, this is like oatmeal. It's so sticky and cold, and I just heavy and damp and so what is the flavor of that sleepiness that's visiting you if you don't want it to be there that's very hard to explore if you had taken aversion to the sleepiness on the one hand you don't like it if you've surrendered to the sleepiness you're not going to investigate it's just going to be kind of lights out if you raise up that sense recognizing it oh okay there's some form of sleepiness here accept it, that's the A of uh, rain. Okay, I can accept this. They visit, temple told me somehow that was good. <laughs> so let's, let's take this one, allow it to be there, and then begin to investigate it. Another way of using uh, I, sometimes I use the word intimacy, the I for intimacy, become intimate with the experience of sleepiness. On... <clears throat> on the one retreat when I was first starting, I was determined to come to the late night sit every night. And that's often the sleepy, that was often one of my sleepy uh, sits. And so I would open my eyes, stare at a dot on the floor, and my eyes would cross a little bit. I get so tired that they'd be like, wow, that's fascinating. I was like, okay, that's one thing, that's kind of interesting, I can sit here and be so sleepy and just let it come. It's like, yeah, and there's sort of a nonchalance. I have a kind of sense of ease and my mind is so tired, it can't worry. <laughs> so that's kind of a blessing. There's a lot of tranquility, but it's just dim. Um, so that's an example of allowing sleepiness to be there, becoming intimate within it, and then seeing what the, what the flavors and textures are like when you're in a sleepy state. If that sleepy state is so strong that the, that you're just not making any contact, and you're you know rather than 
just being completely blotto, um, you might try to bring a little more energy to the mind, not to make the sleepiness go away. I mean, you might win one or two times, but eventually you're going to be in it. So you might as well befriend it. So how do you bring energy up into your system enough to counter the too dim state so a little mindfulness can grow and you can actually get to know sleepiness or you can uh, help yourself out by just bringing something that arouses more energy. It's helpful uh, to experiment with opening your eyes. If you're in a drifty state and you're not connecting to very much, with your eyes closed, sometimes that's an association for us to kind of daydream and be a little lost. You open your eyes, there's context. Oh, I'm in a room full of people. Oh, that's right, I'm meditating, right? Open your eyes, the brightness comes in, and see if you can then reconnect to your breath, if you're in the room here, working with your breath. Opening your eyes is very helpful. If you're getting a lot of sleepiness coming, it's helpful to come to standing. As uh, Heather said, she said it was impossible to fall asleep standing, and uh, I did it once. (laughs) So I've done the impossible. Um, I was standing, because standing also brought more energy. And I was standing there, and I was starting to sway, and I didn't realize I was falling asleep standing, because I was too sleepy. And so I thought I was meeting it, but I started to be taken over by it. And then I felt this feeling that I only know when I'm on a swing and falling, because I was falling through space, and I was like, that shouldn't be happening. And I opened, I just had time to put my foot forward before I crushed the yogi in front of me. I was like, okay, and that woke me up. (laughs) So that brought adrenaline and that got rid of the sleepiness. Um, So opening your eyes. And then at some point I was working with the sleepiness, really determined to sit that last um, sitting, where I would balance on my tiptoes. I'd come up on my tiptoes and that would engage me enough that I wouldn't succumb to the foggy state. Like, so I'm just going to see what it's like to challenge it. So that's, that's an extreme stance. But uh, it can help rather than just sitting there and being completely either forlorn or checked out. You can try standing. Just you know, be careful if there are yogis in front of you <laughs> not to have collisions. The Buddha gave a, an analogy um, when... Uh, that kind of fits that, uh, the aquarium model. Um, he said, having sleepiness in the mind is like when your water is full of algae. So if there's so much algae, I'm not sure if you've all had fish tanks, but if you don't clean them, uh, algae grows, and sometimes it grows on everything, and the water gets very thick, it's hard to see clearly. And so it's the mind where that sort of um, uh, swimmy, full, groggy, state takes over. The Buddha had another analogy. He said, um, when sleepiness comes, um, a festival could be happening. You could be enjoying it, but you're locked in a dark room. And then you come out of the dark room and everybody's talking about this great festival and you were near it, but you couldn't enjoy it because you were in this dark room. Or he actually, I think it's translated as a prison. So in some ways, You know, sleepiness can be unpleasant and it can be a, a big block to being present. So that's when you might open your eyes, stand, just to let a little more light in. And that's countering the sleepiness. But then at some point, allow yourself to be mindful of sleepiness. Not only frame it as a problem. Frame it as something happening. Some fish swimming through your tank. It's the sleepy fish. And you just experience it and get familiar with it. It's possible that it's part of your purification, that sleepiness is arising. And so if you don't react, if you don't shut down, if you meet it, you're allowing yourself to purify. And then what's left over is the more free heart and mind. The next pattern is restlessness and Restlessness uh, can come of um, uh, a couple of forms. Also, it's a category of experience. 
Restlessness is often when there's too much unsettled energy in your body or in your mind. Um, the uh, Buddha, when he was talking, using these analogies, he said it's like winds stirring the water. And so the water's very agitated. You're, you would feel it inside your mind. Your mind's very active. You might visit your breath, but be distracted. Come back to your breath, be over here, be over there. What about this? What about that? And you can't land anywhere. You can't stay anywhere because the mind is stirring so much. It's so unsettled. If your mind is just busy, that may not be unpleasant. You might be kind of um, in this restless state and just thinking a lot and kind of going here, going there. It's not very productive, but you're kind of just spinning. But restlessness can also come and be very agitating. And so you might feel a form of restlessness where there's just a lot of buzz in the body and it's hard to sit still and your clothes don't feel right and you try this and you try that and you move around and nothing you do uh, allows you to feel contentment or presence or connection or peace in the moment because there's so much internal stirring. Again, if you don't know that it's happening, you'll go on a restless ride. And earlier in my practice, before I began to be able to recognize that restlessness was happening, I opened my eyes and I scratched my shirt, feel a little tight, and I could feel the tag pushing on me, and I would readjust it, and I'd sit up, and I was like, no, not this posture, try this posture, and that wouldn't work. And, and I would be sort of um, uh, taken on this very bumpy ride of restlessness. And maybe I might get my body still, but my mind would be kind of thinking about this and thinking about that, and what about this, and what about that? And it'd just be churning, 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 churning. And as the Buddha said, it's like winds just whipping the waves up, causing all that froth. The analogy uh, with the festival that the Buddha gave, um, it's like there's a beautiful festival in town you could be enjoying, but you have this uh, large to-do list and you feel compelled to do it. And so you have to do all your errands. And so you're doing this and you're doing that. What about this? What about that? And you're, you're actually uh, being dragged around by the restless mind and experiencing it, and you can't be in a place of uh, peace or contentment or joy with, with what's happening right here and now because there's just way too much happening inside. Working with uh, restlessness, again, if you can recognize it, accept it, and begin to investigate it, you'll feel the way your body is kind of twitching and you'll feel the fact that there's, the body is often not settled. And you can see in your mind, it's, it's a difficult one to be with because it, it so fragments your attention that every time you kind of gather yourself to investigate restlessness or recommit to the breath, your attention splits so easily and goes here and goes there and goes here and goes there. But that is the experience when restlessness is with you. It's been my experience that usually as I settle and open, places in my heart, mind, and body that have been contracted, have been holding energy, when they release, sometimes they release more energy into my system than is integrated yet. And that's often when I'm getting restless, is that there's just been a release of energy, but it stirs me up. And it takes a while for it to settle. So it's not necessarily even a bad thing it might be part of your purification again. But in that moment, there's just a little bit too much energy for the space you have. There's just more than you can settle into what's happening. And so the invitation with restlessness is to very patiently keep inviting relaxed, open settledness. That out of restlessness, you might tense up and and be agitated by what's happening and then start to do the to-do list and then go on this bumpy ride where it's, the agitation might even cause you to feel tense. If you can relax your body, if you can relax the space of your mind and uh, invite yourself into more calm states, then you're not necessarily uh, feeling like a shaken soda pop can with just too much pressure inside. There's just a little bit more space and that energy will eventually resolve. It eventually will settle. That's the great thing about Anicca is that 
none of these things are permanent. But <clears throat> while it's happening, it can be unpleasant. You can also invite yourself not to take your lists seriously if you happen to have gotten into a restless planning mode where your mind feels compelled to solve all the things that are happening. Just inviting again your mind to let go, be still, be at ease. If you insist upon it, that won't, have, that won't work so well because then you're at odds with the restlessness. But while there's that restless energy happening for you, inviting your body to be still, inviting your heart to be still, your mind to be still, open and relaxed. The next one <clears throat> coming down the list is uh, craving for sense pleasures. And <clears throat> as a hindrance, specifically, it's where your mind is really in a seeking mode. I would be with the breath, but I've gotten caught up in this fantasy. I would be with, the, with my feet, but um, what's that over there? Or thinking about uh, past pleasant experiences or future pleasant experiences, being agitated by longing for what you don't have. That's coming into this hindrance of pleasure-seeking and you might not mind it. So that's why you might not even recognize that it's happening. You might drift into these sort of pleasant fantasies or yearning and seeking in your mind. Like, I wonder where it's more pleasant. And yeah, this place is not so bad, but I'd rather do a retreat somewhere else. That'd be great. Or um, <clears throat> you can be in this sort of pleasure-seeking mode. And because it's kind of got pleasure in it, it might not feel that bad. So you might not even notice that you're You've been gone from the presence for a while because you've been in this seeking mode, this pleasure uh, fantasy mode. And yet, <clears throat> what you will experience, especially on a longer retreat, is that it may start off pleasant, but when you really taste into it, when you bring that recognition and acceptance and intimacy into that mode, you can find out that it's not actually that pleasant. It promises a lot of pleasure, but all that pleasure is in the promise. The actual experience is one of feeling unsatisfied, deficient, um, non-content. And so there's this underlying discontentment, and because of that, you think your happiness is elsewhere, and so you begin searching. And if you are in, a, in an optimistic mode, all that craving feels like, oh yeah, I can have that, I can have that, I can have that. So you can be very enchanted by this hindrance of the pleasure-seeking mind, the fantasy mind. <clears throat> Before one uh, retreat, my first three-month retreat, um, I had the fortune or misfortune of um, developing a crush on somebody two days before I went to the retreat. <laughs> and <clears throat> we had this out of the blue, beautiful experience. It was a, it was kind of a whole bunch of friends went on this trip and she was one of them. And, and uh, it was like, oh my God, it's beautiful, but you know, I've done enough practice, I'll let it go, go into my retreat and got into the retreat. And then the fantasy would come up and I'd be like, oh yeah, that's nice. And maybe after the retreat, but you know, I can let it go. And then I got into some of the hardship of the retreat. My back kind of hurt and I, I was um, suffering a little bit. And then that fantasy had a lot more promise to it. <laughs> so it wasn't as easy to dismiss. I noticed that when the fantasy came and I was fairly content, it's like, oh yeah, it's a fantasy. It's a little distracting, but I kind of like where I am, so I can wait. But if I was struggling with my back pain or my boredom or my doubts and that craving came, I can't see the, the kind of viciousness, viciousness of it because it didn't help. It actually made things much worse. Like it was hard enough to actually be with the difficulties that were arising, but now I had to contend with this starving mind and, it, and its solution was so far away and, and actually began to hurt. And I began to feel like the, um, when they talk about craving, tanha, we'll talk about more of this later, but tanha, uh, it's 
it's brutal when it comes in. There's this huge sense of deficiency and this mind that the strain it can cause in you for your happiness or well-being, it feels far away and precarious and, and unnerving and there's this yearning and hunger and there's nothing good about what is happening and the strain for the pleasure, it's elsewhere and, and you can get locked in on that. As I was deepening into the practice, I saw the consequences of this hindrance. One, I wasn't with my breath, but, you know, it was kind of pleasant, so who cares? <laughs> to be honest, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not with my breath, but, you know, it's kind of a nice fantasy. But <clears throat> as I began to feel into the, the, the actual, um, the deficit that it was causing, it began to not be so pleasant. It began to, like, oh, I get this one. I get why this is not only a hindrance to, to being pleasant, but why it's not something to encourage and why I do want to walk myself out of it. And lo and behold, that's actually how you work with it, is that your mind will have fantasies, and if, as long as you believe them, as long as you're still enchanted by them, it's very hard to put away a, a juicy fantasy compared to the neutrality of the breath. And so your mind kind of is sucked away, sucked away. You can be noble all you want, but the breath versus that fantasy, it's got a lot of magnetic draw to it. And so if you have a persistent fantasy, if you have a persistent hindrance that's uh, drawn to this, you want to feel into that dissatisfied mind. You have to see through the delusion of it. You have to see this fantasy probably won't happen. This fantasy puts my pleasure far away. This This fantasy is rooted in a rejection of what is. And if you don't, if you don't get that, the lure will go by, you'll bite it and you'll go on the fantasy ride and you're caught. The Buddha uh, talked about this in terms of um, being in debt. So <clears throat> if you owe, you owe a lot of money to someone, that person can do what they want to you. You're sort of, uh, you, you're powerless because this person has whatever, your money and that's your have that debt. And so when you pay off your debt, <clears throat> you're then free of having to be, of having to be uh, pushed around by the person you're indebted to. So <clears throat> when you find yourself enamored with a fantasy and you really can't come back to the breath, you can't come back to your feet, you can't come back to the present and being content here and now with the way things are, and you're drawn into that type of pleasure, you, you have to taste the actual mind state and its qualities. And you have to taste the fact that if you'd rather be elsewhere, you're rejecting what's happening here and now. You're putting your pleasure elsewhere. You're saying that this moment actually can't fulfill me. It's elsewhere. And you're buying into it. And again, one part of that might be pleasant, but it's a setup. And that begins to fade. It's the promise of, uh, um, there's mythology around this, the promise of some great thing, but when you actually walk into it, as it falls apart, you realize you've been had. And a lot of fantasy is like that. You're being had, and if you enjoy it, you're that much more had trying not to, what I tried to do is like, oh, I'm just going to hate every time my mind goes into a fantasy, I'm just going to hate it. And that didn't work either because I was just bringing up aversion to it and that, it, it didn't really solve it. But actually the intimacy, you begin to feel that there's an enchantment and there's some, re- there's some rejection, there's some uh, pulling away, the present isn't good enough. And then you'll see what happens when the mind can be content with several breaths in a row or going for a walk and you're actually in your body, you're in presence, that type of fulfillment is here and now. That type of fulfillment is an open, clear, hardened mind. That can go somewhere. That is something you can cultivate. That's a happiness that continues to grow. But if your happiness is elsewhere and then you're seduced by that over and over, um, 
there's, uh, there's just distraction and there's disappointment in it. But while it's happening, there's that, there's that pleasure draw. <clears throat> the next hindrance when it arises, we call aversion. And it's sort of the opposite. The opposite in that <clears throat> there's something happening that you don't like. And that the fact that you don't like it begins to agitate you. And you begin to resent or fixate on what you don't like. So that can come through you as a wave. And you might not even notice when it's coming. Especially if you're used to aversion, if you like aversion, if you're comfortable being aversive. It might feel like wisdom. So you're sitting there in quiet and then uh, somebody next to you starts to breathe loud and it annoys you. And then your mind says, they shouldn't be doing that. And you look and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. They shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, that's clarity. Yep, that's not aversion, that's clarity. And they, they keep <laughs> breathing loud. It's like, mm, why they let them on this retreat? I thought these were experienced people. They're breathing loud, don't they know? And you start chewing on it and you start turning it over and over and you get frustrated. And you're actually having a wave of aversion. It'll lock onto something, it'll fixate on it, and it will probably justify itself. While that's happening, if you haven't recognized that aversion is visiting you, it will probably feel, again, like clarity. And so that's one of the ways that it actually uh, ensnares you. And if it builds, you can build a really strong aversive case and just be sitting there boiling in your aversion, <clears throat> feeling that you're right, but suffering. So uh, coming out of that enchantment, coming out of that aversion, recognizing that it's happening is really important. One of the ways that <clears throat> I learned to recognize it is that if I'm starting to plan in my mind uh, harm <laughs> to <laughs> another living being, <laughs> Chances are that thought's like, oh, I wonder if I'm being aversive because <laughs> that stream of mind, yeah, that's definitely, that's a violent thought. It's funny, it feels so right. <laughs> wow, that, I, this feels like wisdom, but no, it's pretty violent. <clears throat> Luckily that's happened less and less as my mind has gotten clearer, but um, when, it, uh, when it takes over, um, it, it will enchant you and you'll feel very right. So that's one of the difficulties with aversion. Um, and then you begin to, so it's hard enough to kind of wake up to the fact that you're in aversion when it's striking and when you're embroiled in it. But then you have to be mindful of it. You have to recognize it, accept it, and be intimate with it. And oh, it's, it's difficult to be intimate with aversion because it's hot inside, it's agitated inside. You so want to blame whatever your mind thinks is the cause, except it's the mind that's the cause. You're sitting here, nothing really has changed, yet aversion is washing through you. So you have to be intimate with it. <clears throat> As I was practicing over the, the years, I got better and better at actually meeting aversion and not cringing underneath it or not just suffering when aversion was happening, but opening up and it felt more and more like uh, opening a furnace and just getting used to the heat. I was like, ah, oh, it's so hot. My mind is really boiling right now. And at some point I couldn't take it and I'd kind of cringe and be forlorn and feel like a bad yogi and go on that whole uh, ride. But building capacity to meet waves of aversion when they would come through <clears throat> and there was one time in uh, in Burma where I had um, I had sprained my ankle and I was kind of feeling um, uh, defeated by the practice and it was hot out and they were put me in this room to rest but it was getting baked by the sun and it had a metal roof and the crows were landing on it and they would fly land hit and then their claws would <laughs> kind of go down and they stop themselves. And then they would caw, and they have this cawing 
that in Burma, it might be ravens actually, because it sounds like somebody is being tortured to death. This this cough. <laughs> I was lying there baking in the heat with my ankle sprained and feeling defeated, and the room was getting hotter and hotter. And I was trying to again be a good yogi. It's like, oh, there's a version. I I can recognize it. And I'm not gonna. I can accept it, but I'm not fully accepting that it's happening. I don't want to take over. It's so unpleasant. And my, <clears throat> it got hotter and hotter and hotter, and, and the tension was coming, and the crows were coming, and I was just wanting to kill the crows. And there was this young monk who was running up and down the hall, knocking at everybody's door just for the fun of it, and he was banging on the door, and I was like, but they gotta train that guy. And, <laughs> and my mind was going, going, and I, at some point, <clears throat> it just, my, I went nuclear, <laughs> nuclear. And, it just was a flooded out this this rage, this heat. I didn't scream, but there's this, and I felt like a volcano that was just erupting. And that was the first time I'd actually was mindful enough to allow that much release of of this uh, aversion. And it was everything. You hated everything. <laughs> But I wasn't trying to contain it so much or tamp it down. It's like, yep, this is a version. Wow. And, it, and then at some point it had released. And all that tamping down was out of me and it had dispelled some. So that's the promise of going through it, not always tamping it down and not always um, holding on to it. It's good to do that versus acting upon it. <laughs> but at some point, Letting yourself recognize this is the version. I know it's a version because I'm very irritated with something outside of myself. I think I'll be, be I'll be better off without that thing happening, that person or that experience. And <clears throat> allowing yourself to feel the consequences of it, and then coming down uh, intimately into a version and seeing the setup of it. I'll be happy if that is different. Making that different will make me happy. If you're in an aversive mood, that's not true. It just is the fantasy. I'll be happy if that's different. But because the aversion is actually inside, you won't be happy. The Buddha said, using his analogies, um, when there's aversion in the heart and the mind, someone could give you uh, uh, honey and sugar and it will taste bitter to you. It won't be sweet enough. It won't be the right type of honey. And it's like, I don't want that sugar. It doesn't taste sweet. I don't want to get fat, bad for my teeth. The honey doesn't taste good. So no matter what is happening, we blame outside of ourselves. We blame the experience. But <clears throat> it's actually a wave of aversion coming through. Recognizing it, accepting it, investigating it, being intimate with it. And in the end of uh, rain, which I haven't gotten to in all of these, um, coming to the end a little bit late, the end uh, stands for uh, non-self or non-story, non-identification. So you'll notice that when struggles happen, as um, Heather was saying, we can add a lot of story to it. So as our minds get agitated, the stories that arise will also be kind of agitated and they, they, uh, they multiply our suffering. So again, if sleepiness is happening, you might identify with that and say, I am a sleepy meditator. I am not good at this meditation. And so it's just sleepiness. Same with restlessness. Stories might arise, but let them arise and go. Don't add a story about yourself because there is restlessness present. And the same with craving and aversion. Not, I am fundamentally flawed because there's aversion in me. I'm not a good spiritual person because no good spiritual person would have this much hatred inside or this much fear or this much uh, dislike. That's part of the, the human heart on its way to awakening passes through aversion. You'll get it on some level, either a lot or a little. So not identifying with it, allowing the aversion to be there, experiencing it, getting used to how the aversive mind works, what its beliefs are, 
how it operates. And then uh, seeing if you can let go of what's feeding the aversion. So your preferences for things being different might be feeding your aversion. I like it quiet because then I don't have to work as hard. Oh dear, there's reality. It's not quiet. That's the problem. Hmm. I'm going to let go of my need for the room to be quiet. I'm going to let go for my need for ravens in Burma not to make noise. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to align with reality versus my preferences and suffer less because of it. That is how you can undermine and dissipate the aversion. If it's got its roots in, things should be different. Letting go of that and say, this is the way things actually are. And I can find peace and contentment with the way things are versus this storm in my mind that's wishing things were different. The last of the hindrances uh, we call doubt. And sometimes it gets translated as the wavering mind. And the practice is simple. And so while you're here, the practice is uh, be present with your experience. You can always default to being present with how your what your body is experiencing, your breath, your feet. You know, you can just come and connect, come and connect to the present. So that's fairly simple. But it's strange that when doubt comes, we get perplexed by that. We don't know if we're doing it right. We don't know if we understood it right. If it were true, if this was the right way to practice, wouldn't I be freer by now? Am I doing it right? I don't know if I understood them right. When they said this word, did I understand that word? And there can be a lot of sort of uh, swirling and um, vacillating and confusion in the mind. If you don't know it, you'll often suffer this sense of um, doubt in yourself, doubt in the path, doubt in the teachings, and you'll retract from the practice. You'll retract because it's too confusing, it feels overwhelming, you're not quite sure what to do, so you don't do anything. And then you just sort of uh, hover and in this wavering state. On my, um, my very first retreat, it was about midway through, I was doing um, walking meditation and we were supposed to come into the hall and this doubt began to come. I was like, I, don't, I can't go sit again. I can't. And I, and I believed it. Like, I don't know why I can't, but I can't. And why am I on this retreat? Why did I choose this? And what are these teachings? And why am I here? I don't belong here. And, <clears throat> and this doubt came and I couldn't go into the hall. Wouldn't allow myself in the hall. And so I started doing walking meditation practice. And at some point, I was like, I'm doing this all wrong. I'm not good at this. I never was good at this. I thought I was good at it yesterday, but I must have been confused because I'm so, it's so perplexing. What did it put your attention on the breath? Like, how could one do that? And I was just spinning in my mind, spinning, spinning, spinning. I stopped walking. I put my head against the wall. And I was just suffering in this doubt, 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 doubt. And luckily someone had given the talk on the hindrances enough that this little light went off. I was like, where does this doubt? <laughs> like, oh, oh, this is doubt. Oh my God. And it took about 25 very agitated, horrible, uh, self-deprecating moments of you know, self, self-hatred and confusion and frustration. Like, oh, I'm experiencing a wave of doubt. And they talked about this. If I'm experiencing it, and they said it should happen, and it is happening, that's clarifying. It's supposed to happen. This is, gave me a lot of confidence. Like, I'm on the path. <laughs> and it was funny how quick that recognition put me back on. It's like, oh, this happens. Okay, okay. I have not gotten far from the path, and now I have to work my way way back. That is a part of the path. Doubting it is what the bricks are made of. There will be doubts, doubt bricks on this path. And I just stepped on one. It's a solid brick on the path. I experienced doubt. Okay. And it dissipated. It was like, that was very, it's funny how much confidence I got (laughs) by recognizing that my mind had just gone through a really bad doubt stream. And I saw again how it worked. You know, I was horribly intimate with it. it. You doubt yourself. You doubt your capacity. You doubt your worthiness, 
Or you turn external, it's like, you know, well, about these teachers, and what did they really talk about? Is this really what the Buddha said? And rah, 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 rah. And you can feed it, especially if, you th- especially if doubt has picked up something. Like, I, I don't know if I'm good at this. And you, you know, that's a you know, valid question. Are you good at this? Who knows? But it can pick up on it, and then it begins to like tie a knot in itself and begins to feed on itself. And when you're spinning in that, it's very painful. And it's definitely, it's hard to practice there. But if you can recognize when you're in a wavering state, when you're in a doubting state, this is doubt. This is a flow of doubt. And not only is it not bad practice, it's a part of the practice. And chances are you'll experience doubt where you don't yet have strong faith. So doubt will come up. It comes up, you stay with it. You don't actually leave the retreat. (laughs) You stay with it, and then the wave passes. And when the wave passes, you have more perspective, more confidence. Okay, doubt comes. I had tremendous doubt when I was in Burma. You know, I was in this cabin by myself, and I had ordained, and I was practicing, and I was like, boy, I don't know if I made the right choice. It would come in a wave and it would settle in. <clears throat> and then when doubt left, it would leave this very beautiful, humble state. And then that beautiful, humble state would sort of inflate itself a little bit. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm actually good at this. And I made it through doubt. And I'm like, okay, I'm up for this. And then I started to build an ego upon it. Like, I'm a good monk. I'm a good meditator. And I'm, I'm sticking with this. And I would slightly kind of congeal into this positive sense of myself. This sort of like, I like this guy, this guy's confident, and let's, let's, let's be him. And then, doubt, <laughs> and then doubt would come, and it would be like a, like a forest fire, just clearing out all that ego confidence, like take it all out. It would be very, you know, there'd be a lot of suffering. And then there'd be this sort of like, I'm happy to be with the breath. I, I don't have to be a great meditator. I just want to be with my breath, and we're good. So ego, let's stay out of this. Let's just be with the breath. And so it, it would clarify, and it would clarify where there was sort of uh, not confidence in myself. It would use themes of how I had doubted myself and really torture myself over it. It's helpful <clears throat> to have a faith practice or a confidence practice that just stay with it, even if it doesn't make sense. Because if you're stepping out, off the breath and trying to figure it out, if you're stepping out of your feet, if you're stepping away from your direct experience, and you think somehow way up here where it's all spinning, there's a solution, you'll just spin up there. You'll just keep spinning in speculation, ungrounded speculation and wavering. And it doesn't actually lead anywhere. It just sort of is very confusing, very troubling. And so the faith is, boy, even if it doesn't make sense, I don't know why I'm doing it right now, but I'm going to bring my attention back to the next breath and stay with it. And luckily, doubt like a rain, it just passes. And in its place, there's the practice. There's the validation of being with the contentment of something simple like breathing. So having faith, having faith to stay with the practice when it's not clear, not clear why, or if you're in a confused state, that's usually the best thing to do if you can recognize Again, that doubt's visiting. Accept it. Be intimate with it. And let go of the story it generates about you or others. It's not a helpful story. And really the help is to come down again, be simple, recommit to the breath. And you'll find your way out of that doubt labyrinth just by simply being with your body. That's usually how I ground myself when doubt begins to spin These hindrances come. They, they are a part of the path. And at times they don't arise. That's not necessarily better practice. It's just those are the conditions. You're in a conditions where hindrances aren't arising. And then they do arise at times. The sooner you can align with the fact that they've arisen, recognize them, accept them, be intimate with them, and then balance them out if you can, but not by rejecting them or being frustrated by them. Allow yourself to first experience what's happening 
and then see if there's a correction that might bring a little more balance, a little more energy to the sleepy states, a little more relaxation when there's restlessness, letting go of the enchantment when there's fantasy, and not blaming the target of your aversion, but seeing if you can release the preferences. And then coming back to simplicity with faith of the simple breath or walking when your mind is starting to do too much ungrounded speculation. And eventually Anicca comes and clears out the hindrance, but uh, while you're in it, those are the ways you can work with it. So I wish you peace when there are hindrances and I wish you peace when there are not. Thank you. Let's sit for a moment, let that settle, and then we'll go on to walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.